0: Why don't you turn in your Bible back to Colossians chapter 2? Colossians chapter 2, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 16 to 23. Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. If you need a Bible, don't have one, uh, we have some in the back. You can just raise your hand. One of our staff members would love to be able to get one of those to you. Uh, Colossians 2, verses 16 to 23. Let's read God's Word uh, together. It reads, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or worship of angels, going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body "...nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings." These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Thus reads the word of the living God. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your truth. May we now from it learn so that we might grow. And God, we recognize that our growth depends on you. There is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. There is also nothing we can do to add to the work that you're doing in us. And so we depend on you. And we pray that by your power and your might, by your grace and your mercy, we would grow up to be that which you are making us to be, to be more in the image of Jesus. Thank you that you're doing this work in us. Thank you for this passage and how it warns us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes uh, we can get a little superstitious. I think we can. Uh, There's some common ones too. Uh, Any that you can think of? Any superstitions that you know are common and familiar? Yeah. Yeah. That was a very, that was an educated way of putting it. I would have just said Area 51 has aliens, it <laughs> but it is associated with aliens. Okay, that's a good one. Um, yeah, very conspiracy-like. Uh, Any others? Any other superstitions? Oh, there was two. See, you guys know a lot of them. You're ready. Birds are government spies. <laughs> Okay, so I want to go back to superstitions, not conspiracies. <laughs> uh, what do you got? Knock on wood. It's a great one. Yeah, right here. Good sermon. Santa delivers presents to us. <laughs> Santa delivers presents to us is not a superstition. I think that's just a belief. But yeah, you're, you're getting there. I think knock on wood kind of gets to the point. Um, there's, a, there's some others. There's beginner's luck. Have you heard of beginner's luck before? It's basically the way that someone who's used to doing something uh, says that someone who hasn't been used to doing something is good at it only because they just started. right? You're kind of jealous and you go like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you beat me. Beginner's luck. Well, the reason there's there's no beginner's luck. It's just that that's what you assume because you got beat. Um, Find a penny, pick it up. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of this before because you devalue pennies, but um, back when they were valuable, you would want to pick them up. Um, And it still connotes a little bit of luck. Uh, Don't walk under that ladder. Uh, There's some superstition to that. There's also just a lot of wisdom uh, when someone's on a ladder. I would highly advise that you um, stay away from walking under that ladder. Um, Dude, the black cat. Um, First of all, they are just scary. But also, if you see one, it's, it's technically supposed to be like an omen. Uh, something bad, something unfortunate might become of you because of beholding a black cat. I used to think they were scary, but they've cute is the right word, um, if you can see them in the light. Um, in the dark, still scary. Uh, a rabbit's foot. Uh, maybe you've heard of the rabbit foot. It, it brings you luck and it, uh, it bids you good tidings. Uh, bad luck comes in threes, be careful with that mirror. Uh, knock on wood, which one of you mentioned. Uh, you know, Thanksgiving always brings us back to the time of the wishbone. Um, you know, that, that ever so delicate piece of bone that you uh, rip out of a turkey's body um, so tenderly and so lovingly, only to break it even further. <laughs> um, uh, you know, the belief is that first century Romans... Uh, used to fight over the dried wishbone, and because of that, it would break, and it is supposed to be a, a bone that connotes uh, positivity, goodness, uh, good luck, good fortune, and so because they would fight over it, that's where the tradition of whoever got the bigger piece of the bone got the good luck. That wasn't part of the sermon. That was just for you. You know, you could do whatever you want with it. Um, cross your fingers. Uh, you know, or you know, we we should pray. And some of you cross your fingers. No umbrellas inside, or maybe most notably you've heard of this one. Um, Friday the 13th. Yeah, it was an audible groan, see? And the reason is because there's absolutely no value and literally nothing that, there's nothing evil about Friday that's 13. Um, it's just you've watched bad movies. Or uh, it's that, Like every other person, the minute that one wrong thing happens on Friday the 13th, the rest of them are cursed for you. Um, You know, you stub your toe on Friday the 13th, and now you absolutely believe in superstition. Yeah, you do. Um, That's probably the most common one. It dates back to the 1800s. And this is exactly how it works. There are things that really are of no value, there are things that really hold no weight, there are things that really are meaningless. But we put value in them because we uh, love to focus on the wrong things. And honestly, as people, as uh, humans, we tend to focus on life outside the bounds of realities. And we put stock into things and we put weight into things that really do not carry any value. I think Paul's argument to this church as it continues to move and now heads into a little bit more of a practical direction. In light of Jesus and in light of being saved in Christ, how should you live? Paul begins that conversation with a series of warnings. And Paul's warnings to this church are actually something similar to what we've already discussed, which is, friends, don't give yourself to living in ways that you know are not true. Don't give yourself to thinking in ways or believing in ways or acting in ways or thinking in ways or speaking in ways that are not in alignment with the truth. It's so easy the moment that that one thing happens on Friday the 13th for you to believe in things that you know are just not true. Or it's so easy that one night you walk across that, you come face to face with that one black cat to think, oh my goodness, everything's going to cave in. It's so easy to get the bigger end of the wishbone. And for some reason, just because you want it, to think, Something good's going to happen now, even though you know that that bone was just in a dead turkey. It makes no sense, but that's how we operate. That's how we live. That's often how we live our lives. We put stock into things and we place reality into things that we have no reason doing so. And Paul's argument for us this morning is something very similar. In knowing Christ and in having seen him the way that he is recognizing that Christ is preeminent, that He's superior, that Christ is over all things, that Christ has made all things and governs them, and He keeps those things together. And seeing Christ as the one who has made it possible for us to be right with God, how should we maintain our relationship with God? I think there's so many ways for us to be distracted. I think there's so many ways for us to think that we'll find power and grace to walk with God that are not the one way that Paul has prescribed for this church. There's many things that you can do that are helpful. There's many reading plans that you can do that'll keep you. There are many uh, prayer circles that you can join and prayer groups that you can attend. There's many Bible studies that you can be a part of. There's many rituals that you can partake in, but none of those things are the primary key to your walk with God. And Paul is trying to focus this church back in on what is primary, what is necessary. Not because those other things don't matter and not because those other things aren't good. But because when we focus our lives on the things that we do and not on the Christ that we worship, our life is going to be prone to falling apart. It might evidence in your life that you never understood the primary thing to begin with. Or it might evidence that you might depend on yourself much more than you think. That's what this church is going through. And that's why this a particular text that we're about to look at, it highlights very specific things to this context that I think will still be helpful to us. What this church is enduring, this church at Colossae, we've talked about the philosophy that it's had to uh, endure, right? There, There are beliefs and systems and patterns of thought that are making their way into this church, tampering with the truth that this church knows about God. But there's something else that's happening here. And here in this text, it's Paul reminding this church, hey, there's a lot of religious people around you. There's a lot of people that are seeking after God, but not doing so in God's way. And you cannot mix religion with faith. Those two things don't work together. Faith absolutely does a lot. Faith absolutely, like we've discussed, it has a particular walk. If you've received Christ, verse 6 of chapter 2, you will walk in him. So faith is very active. And faith has a particular movement. Faith has a particular heartbeat. But it's all rooted to and oriented upon the person and work of Jesus. What you have in religion and ritual, it's often people trying to live up to Jesus but doing so without him. That's the danger. The danger is trying to please God, honor God, live up to God without God. And that's the danger that this church finds itself in. There are people who would wish that, yes, you can claim Christ if you want, but you need to do all these other things. You need to live in all these other ways. And if you do that, then yes, you are right with God. And Paul steps in and he gives us a particular warning here so that we would be perceptive to those people that walk into our life and so that we would never base our faith and our assurance in God on anything other than Christ. The way Paul wants to warn us of that this morning quickly turning into afternoon is in light of three particular people. There's three kinds of people that you want to be watchful of, and that you wanna be watchful that you don't become. Three kinds of people, who are they? I've labeled them this way. Number one, the overachiever. Number one, the overachiever, verses sixteen to seventeen. Number two, you want to be careful with the know-it-all. The know it all. That's we're gonna see that in verses eighteen to nineteen. And thirdly, you wanna be careful with Goody two-shoes. Yeah, goody two-shoes. You might know that person well already, but we're going to see them in full in verses 20 to 23. It's in light of these three personas that you want to be careful of the influences in your life and also who it is that you are as a Christian. That your life as a Christian is marked as such because of your dependency on Jesus and who he is, not necessarily who you are. However, in light of that, you want to be careful as well to recognize that though you must not be any of these three, you definitely and most assuredly in Christ are being made to be more like Him. That's our goal. That's our aim. And let's be careful with these three. Firstly, looking at the overachiever. Look at verse 16. Therefore... Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Therefore, reminds us that this is tied to what Paul has already been discussing, right? Because of the argument I've already made, we're going to enter into this new argument. And Paul's previous argument was to remind this church of what they've been afforded in Christ, not to give in to philosophy because their mind has been made new by God. And it's been made new because God has separated them from an old life, from a desire that only seeks to live for themselves into a new life that now seeks to live unto Christ. Because of this, what is it that they are granted? Well, it's like they're walking into Planet Fitness. They got a no-judgment zone. Not many of you have walked into a Planet Fitness, I see. That's okay. Neither have I. Yes, I have. That's why I know. Therefore, ne- let no one pass judgment on you, which I think a lot of us love to hear. We, we would love to hear that there is no opportunity by which we can be judged, But it's not necessarily that that Paul's point is. Paul's point is there's particular things on which we should not judge one another. And I think it does remind us that the church is a place that doesn't have room for judgmental people. Though we are supposed to help one another grow in the faith, though we are supposed to be discerning of where each other are and how we can help one another fight sin and grow, we ought never to grow so cold so as to be judgmental. And in this particular instance, the judgmentalism that has crept into this church by certain individuals who think they're better than everyone else, it's with regard to all kinds of stuff that's done in the church. It's it's with regard to all kinds of stuff that God's people are prone to do. In particular, in this church, perhaps a Jewish context. Let no one pass judgment on you In question of food and drink or regard to festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are things that would have been common Jewish language because it's common for Jewish people to have all kinds of rules and regulations on these kinds of things. Animals they could not eat. Items they could not drink. Activities they had to participate in. Worship rituals they had to participate in. Certain days of the year that they had to participate in. This is the context that Paul is speaking to, but he's asking this church not to judge one another on that basis. Don't judge one another on the basis of the things that you do. Why? This is what Christ came to undo. Instead of judging one another on the basis of the things that we do, we have now come to the place where we judge one another, not on that basis, but on the basis of how we are maturing into the image of Jesus. That's what the church is. There was plenty of things that you can do for God, plenty of things this church could do for God. And they were trying to figure out how committed to be in them. Should we keep staying away from ham sandwiches or can we have one now? Do we have to stay away from these drinks or can we partake in them now? Do we still have to partake in all these rituals that we do, the, the festivals? Uh, there were annual festivals in Israel and in Jewish times and even the time of Paul and they continue to this day. In fact, they add to their number year after year. But maybe the most common ones that you would know, you can find them in Leviticus 23. Uh, three main ones would be the Passover. A remembrance of when God delivered His people out of Egypt. Or or you're familiar maybe with Pentecost. A celebration of the end of the harvest and an opportunity to look to God and to give Him the first fruits of your harvest. Or, Or maybe you're familiar with the Feast of Tabernacles. A commemoration of when Israel had no home and had to trust God in the wilderness. And there's many others and you know some of them, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. and You think of these days as a day off from school, but they're a day that is commemorated in Judaism. There's Purim, there's the, there's the festival of lights, uh, which is more than just what you saw entangled. It's a, it's a ritual that's common to the Jewish people. These are annual festivals that these people were a part of. What's more is they had this new moon festival, which is a a monthly celebration, actually a monthly uh, opportunity by which they would sacrifice uh, unto God. It's found in Numbers 28. And moreover, they have the Sabbath, a weekly celebration, an opportunity to rest in God. And maybe in that, you see what Paul is arguing here. The things that you had to commit to each year, the things you had to commit to each month, the things you had to commit to each week, That's not the basis of your faith anymore. The basis of your faith is not in your commitments, but in God's commitment to you. It's never been about how committed you are. That's been the whole point. In some way, the point of all these items, all these things that could be done, even the scripture tells us the point of the law was to show us just how short we fall of the glory of God. And now we are no longer judged on that basis. And in fact, these were to point us to God. These were to highlight who God is. But they were never to be the primary focus. The primary focus of everyone who knows God is singular. What is that primary focus? What well, isn't the things we do, it's who we do it for. The primary focus was never the things we do. It was God himself. And this is what Christ came to do for us. That's why verse 17 is so glorious, so impactful. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Christ has come to display for you what these things could never display in and of themselves. And Christ has come to make them no longer binding, but now to make it that you be bound to him. It is irrelevant now whether you keep a Passover or the, or the Pentecost or the tabernacles or whether you sacrifice on a new moon. In fact, we don't need that anymore because we have Christ. It's no coincidence that it's at a Passover meal that Jesus says, now you will remember my body and my blood. Because now in Christ, our sins will be passed over by his grace. It's no coincidence that at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 3, it's the Holy Spirit we see that descends upon the people of God to help them walk in light of who Christ is. To help them initiate the church of Christ in the way that God wants. It's no coincidence that a people who used to have no home will now have one eternally. And there will be no temple for these people, but there will be a Jesus. It's no coincidence that a people who had to sacrifice over and over and over to be right with God no longer need one because they have it in Jesus. And so the question is, would you keep focusing on the shadow when you've been given the substance. You know, if I saw one of my kids running in the street and you know I saw his shadow, that'd be one thing, but I'd be looking for him. I think that's kind of the point that Paul is making here. Don't give yourself to things that are insignificant when you have what's most significant. Give yourself to Christ and judge each other not by what you do, But judge each other on the basis of whom you worship. In that we will recognize that each of us has room to grow. Each of us falls short of his glory. But each of us has been bought by the same price. And each of us is being made into the same image. This is the life of the overachiever that Paul wants to warn you of. That your faith is wouldn't be on the basis of all the things that you do. That your assurance wouldn't be on the basis of you being so great. Because I promise you, and it is not simply I, but it's the word of God that tells us so clearly how many will walk up to heaven's doors and they will boast of the great things they've done for God. And that God will look at them and say, I never knew you. Because God is not focused on what you're doing. God is focused on what Christ is doing in you. The overachiever, he has a great sense of all the things that make him worthy. He has a great sense of just how good of a Christian he is. He has a sense of just how good his attendance at church is. He has a sense of just how good his Bible reading plan is going. He has a sense of just how good his quiet time is. He has a sense of just how much better he prays. He has a sense of just how much Christian music he listens to. And here's the thing. It's not that those things are bad. It's that this person measures up to everyone else but Jesus. That's the big problem. You judge yourself on how much better you live the Christian life than everyone else. That you've missed the point. You were never set up. to to check yourself on the basis of everyone else. You were set up to check yourself on the basis of Christ. And you can't achieve more than him. The overachiever needs to be wary because he's susceptible to going up to Christ on the basis of himself and not on the basis of the only one who grants access into the kingdom of heaven. That's the overachiever. It's someone who does a lot, but very little is done in faith. Secondly, we see the know-it-all. Paul wants to warn us from being these overachievers. He also wants to warn us against and from becoming the know-it-all. We must recognize everything we've looked for, everything we've longed for, all the things that we have sought to commit to, they've pointed us to Christ, and now we have him. And now that we have Christ, not only has Christ achieved everything that we needed, Christ has also revealed everything that we need. There's nothing more for heaven to give on the basis of works or on the basis of knowledge. And this is kind of the point that Paul seeks to make in these next few verses, beginning in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Now, if you're wondering what that means, that's why I get to stand here. So it's, it's a little bit difficult. It's a little bit clunky, but here's the point. There were those coming into the church saying, You need to do more. And I know you believe in Jesus, and that's great, and he was a great guy, and he did so much for us, but the more you do, the better you're gonna be. The more you do, the happier God will be. The more you do, the more sure you will be that God will be pleased with you, which is false, because God is pleased with his son and those who trust in him. Secondly, you had those coming in and maybe it's these same people, or some think it's just one person in Colossae, who we're saying, not only have, has Jesus not done enough for us, uh, Jesus, he hasn't revealed everything there is to know. There, there's so much more to be known about God. There's so much more to be tapped into about God. Jesus is great, and he's shown us so much of God, don't get me wrong, but we need something else, and I have it. I've seen it. It's been shown to me. I've been living a a certain lifestyle that's helped me tap into what God would really want for us. And and I've seen things from God. God has revealed certain things to me, or maybe you've heard it this way. The Lord told me. You know, the Lord said to me the other night, you know, when when I was in my prayer closet, God showed up and he said, have you ever heard anyone talk to you that way? I have and you need to be careful with that. That's what Paul's warning here is for us. There were those stepping into the church and the word that he uses to describe them is actually humble. But it's not because they were humble, it's because they were what we would call they had a false humility. They they went around acting like they were there to serve everyone and please everyone and bless everyone. But these people cared about no one more than themselves. And in doing so, they were leading people astray. And in doing so, they were winning people's favor and gaining access to people's hearts to be able to speak into them and to lead these people to think that there was more to know about God than what was given to us in Christ. And this has led that church, and it could have led that church, into all kinds of disaster. The worship of angels, It's kind of ironic when an angel shows up to the Apostle John he begins to worship and the angel says don't worship me. So it's interesting that these people would seek to do that and that this church would even think that that was right because an angel that's being worshipped an angel that comes from God that's being worshipped would tell you to stop. There's only one that's due that kind of praise. There's only one that's due that kind of honor and it isn't an angel it's God himself. But this Group of people, these folks who were tampering with the gospel of Christ in this church, they were leading people into all kinds of things that would dishonor the Lord. And doing so, why? Because they were going on in detail about visions. They were puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. The issue that these people had was these folks were into themselves. They were know-it-alls they knew better than god and they knew they knew better than god's people they were puffed up and i love that it says this point they were puffed up without reason i love that because the point that paul's been making this entire time is when you have jesus jesus is enough and so it stands without reason that you would go away from that but that's exactly what these individuals were introducing into the church and that's exactly what you need to be careful of. People who would seek to tell you, yeah, Jesus is, he's a decent guy. He was a great guy. In fact, he did a lot. But you know what? There's a little bit more we can tap into. You know, maybe you should pray and ask God to reveal something to you. Maybe you should ask God to, to show you a little bit of something. You know, you, you don't know what to do. Maybe you need to, you know, just wait sit in your closet for the next 10 hours, God will come up at some point and he'll tell you exactly what you need to know. I doubt that people like that read this very often. If you were committed to God's word, if you were committed to the light that is a lamp to your feet and a guide to your path, you would have no need for more than what you have in Christ. If you were to believe the words that you read in this book, And you were to believe that it's true that when we have Christ, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. You wouldn't look for Jesus to say more than he's already said in his son. That's Paul's warning for us. A know-it-all in the church is a great danger because he claims to be more than what Jesus already is. Everything you need to know about God, everything you need to know about how you can live for him, Everything you need to know about how you can mature as a young man or a young woman. Everything you need to know about how you can stand out at your school, in your family, in the midst of this culture. Everything you need to know is bound up to God's truth. And God's truth is bound up in His Son. You need nothing more. Verse 19 makes that so clear for us. These people who have messed with this church, they aren't holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Be careful with people that want you to look more like them than they want you to look like Jesus. Be careful with people who have wisdom that is never based or founded In the word of God. Be careful with people who want to tell you a lot about how you should live, but never point you back to Christ. That's what Paul is saying. These people who have stepped in this church, they've done exactly that. They're telling these people everything they think they need to know about how to live, all the while rejecting the one who gives life, Christ Jesus our Lord. He's the one who's causing the growth in us. And that's good news. But we don't want to grow on the basis of our own strength. We don't want to grow on the basis of our own wisdom. We don't want to grow because uh, simply we have the will to do so. No, we want to grow because God is making that happen in us. That's what that church was missing. The question for you is, is that what you have? Are you committed to Christ in a way where you depend on Him fully? You recognize you have everything you need in him and you're allowing him to work in you. Be careful of being a know-it-all. This is only one who knows it all. His name is Jesus and he's afforded to you the life that you need. Look to him. So be careful with the overachiever. Be careful with the know-it-all. And finally, be careful with the goody-two-shoes. We find him or her right here in verse, beginning in verse 20. If with Christ you die into the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Uh, we have limited time, so I'll try to go through this quickly. The, the point Christ, that Paul is making here, even in verse 20, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, it's not an if of con, you know, possibility. It's a rhetorical question kind of way. If this has happened, which if you believe in Christ it has, then this should not be true of your life. And the point he makes is if, if you have truly died to the world and you are now alive in Jesus, why do you still live by the world's rules? If you have died to the world and you now live to Christ, why do you continue to give yourself to the rules and not to the relationship you have with him? Why do you keep going on the basis of what everyone else says and not going on the basis of what God says? Verse 21, that's the whole point that he's making here. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It's people who are stepping into your life saying, wait, wait, don't do that. Don't do that anymore. Wait, wait, you can't do that anymore. Wait, you can't do that anymore. And Paul's looking at that going, you need to ease up. It's kind of like what happened to Peter. You remember the story of Peter having a vision where God rolls out the most glorious carpet of all time because it has a bunch of meat on it. And so it's, it's basically like going to Fogo the chow. I mean, you're like at a Brazilian steakhouse and, and Peter is covering his eyes and he's weeping and gnashing teeth and he can't believe that he's allowed to have steak now. But it's, he has no idea how good it is. He has no idea how good, how good Christ is, is the point. It, it, the whole world changes, but Paul, or Peter in that instance is thinking to himself, not to handle, not to taste, not to touch. And Jesus steps in and says, no, what I have said is clean. You cannot say is unclean. That's the point that Paul is making for us here. Christ has completely reversed the way that we think now of righteousness. Because that is no longer on the basis of the things that we do. It's now on on the basis of the person and work of Jesus. And he has made us new. He has abolished so many of those old regulations and he has made it so that now in him we are free. We are not bound by our preferences. We're not bound to rules. We're not bound to the way that we think we should live. We're now bound to him. There's a huge difference between doing what is right And being righteous. Do you understand that? I think you do. Because there's a huge difference from when your mom says, go clean your room, and you go do it, but the entire time you're mumbling under your breath and you're talking bad about her, to when your mom says, clean your room, and you have a joy in your heart to do what your mom says. There's a huge difference there between doing what's right and being righteous. And that's what Christ has come to do for us. He hasn't come so that we would just do all that's right. He's come to make us new and turn us into someone who lives in righteous ways. And because of that, we're not bound to what he calls in verse 23, self-made religion or asceticism or severity to the body. To, To being the kind of people who go around moping about because they think that's what's going to make God happy. I need to care so little about myself, and so I should go broke, and I should, I should beat myself a- a- until submission, until I do what's right, and I should set up all these fences around me so that I never do what's wrong, and so let me do the spiritual bubble wrap, and I'll never do anything wrong again. That's not how God wants you to live. In fact, John 8 says that the Son came to make you free, and if He did, you are free indeed. So Christ came not just to give you life, but so that you would live, so that you would enjoy this life, so that you would be committed to living and doing and giving your life to all kinds of stuff, figuring out what you're going to be one day, figuring out who you're going to marry one day, figuring out what your family will look like. Live. That's what Christ came to do for you. But he came to do something else, and that's to make you righteous that's to make you like himself. That's to make you the kind of husband one day that will look most like Jesus. Or the kind of wife one day who will look most like Jesus. The kind of CEO one day who will look most like Jesus. The kind of carpenter one day who will look most like Jesus. That that coder who one day looks most like Jesus That violinist who looks most like Jesus. That's what he came to do for you. He came to do that by stripping you of the old self and giving you a new one. And he came to do that because nothing else worked. That's how this verse ends for us. There's people given to all kinds of self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body. And look at what it says. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There are people trying very hard to live in certain ways and it's of no value for them before God. That's Paul's point. Whether it's trying very hard not to do the wrong thing or trying very hard to do the right thing. There are people in this world walking each and every day not realizing that all of that effort gains them nothing. There is no value in that in stopping your heart From getting what your heart wants. In fact, I I know that because most religious people, the whole point is I'm gonna look good before God and I'm gonna look good in front of others. And the only problem there is you. You were never meant to be at the center. That's Christ's place. And so all this effort is for nothing because it doesn't have anything to do with Christ. What is of value? in getting rid of this flesh? What is of value in living in a way before God that would honor Him and please Him? What is of value in order to live life with a knowledge that truly comes from God? Well, Paul's whole point here is to warn you from the overachiever, to warn you from the know-it-all, to warn you from the goody-two-shoes, and to point you back to the only one able to provide any value in your life before God, Christ Jesus, your Lord. It's where we head next week, but it's where we can end this afternoon. Chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you want a life that honors Him, if you want a life that pleases Him, then you'll have to live by faith. Not on the basis of the things that you do. Not on the basis of the things you think you know. And not on the basis of the things that you set up in your life that you think will make you right with God. If you want to be right with God, you need to be right with Him on His terms. His terms are... that you would believe and live for His Son. Have you done that? Have you committed to that? And if that is your life, set your mind there today and always. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word and thank You for Your truth. Thank You, God, that we've had an opportunity to be warned of the dangers that do exist not only in Colossae, but they, they exist even in our day and in our world. And sometimes they can even steep into our church. People who think that being right with God, it's about all the things that we commit to. Or people who think that being right with God is uh, on the basis of things that God still has to show us. God still has to reveal to us. Or things who, people who think that being right with God is on the basis of living life in such a boxed and sheltered way that we would never do anything that displeases God and all the while would be living on the basis of their own efforts and merit, thus dishonoring God because they dishonor his son. Help us to focus our lives and to commit to living for you on the basis of nothing else but Jesus. If we're we're to be found right before the Lord, Would it be because Christ has entered into our hearts, He's transformed us, and He's caused us to walk in a new pattern of life. It's because Christ has given us His righteousness and has caused us to be something we could never make ourselves to be. Thank you for Jesus. And thank you for Paul and this letter. Thank you for this reminder that points us back to the ever-present reality that without Christ, we have nothing. And without Christ, we gain nothing. And so, Lord, we look to you, anyone here who has not believed in Christ, give them eyes of faith to see what they need and to see that in Christ they would gain everything. We pray in his name. Amen.